Now, going on into chapter 24, we see suddenly Joshua becoming a mouthpiece for God. And this is so cool. He's given a prophetic word before. He's shared the word of the Lord, of the Lord before. But now, now Joshua begins to speak literally for the Lord. It says, verse 1, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And he called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, and here we go, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And from here on out, it's all in the first person that's God speaking. From ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river. Namely, Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor. And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. And to Esau, I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But to Jacob and his sons, well, they, they went down to Egypt. Verse 5, Then I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterward, I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them and covered them, and your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Then... I brought you into the land of the Amorites. By the way, we end of verse 7. He says, You lived in the wilderness for a long time. That's all the Lord says to remind them of their 40 years. He doesn't even touch on the sin that left them there for 40 years. That's grace. That's God looking at the people and saying, Okay, and then you were in the wilderness for a while, but then, but then I brought you. You know, he skips right on to the promised land. As, as though he doesn't even remember Israel's sin that landed them 40 years in the wilderness in the first place. That's the way He is with you and me. Yeah, there was that time in your life where I, I think there was a little confusion there, but, but then you came to me, and then you started to live for Christ, and I've been with you, and hasn't it been wonderful? It's, he just doesn't remember. I love that about the Father. He has a real bad memory when it comes to my sin once I have come to Christ Jesus. He chooses not even to focus on it at all. Verse 8, Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan, and they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you. And I delivered you from his hand. And you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Verse 12, And I sent, and this is interesting, I sent the hornet before you. And it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or by your bow. Number five in our vistas here, in our, in our list, God's examination. He is examining all that has happened to Israel from their very beginning, from the first call of Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees to Abraham coming into the land to the people then going down in Egypt, back up out of Egypt, all of it. God covers it in a nutshell. It's a great history of Israel right there. God examines what happens, but in this examination it happens through the lens of His sovereignty. You notice how many times, and I highlighted it in my Bible just so I could see it, every time He says, I... 
I, 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 I. It's all about what the Lord did. It's all about what He intentioned to do. What He purposed to do by His gracious will. And He does it in amazing grace. And speaking of grace, look at verse 13. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built. And you have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves. You didn't even plant. That's grace. Unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. I brought you into this land and you can't even claim the buildings you're living in. You can't claim the vineyards that you're drawing fruit off of. I gave it to you. It was all here for you. You can't even take credit for that. Ran across this verse. I'd heard it before, but it really impacted this week. John chapter 1, verse 16. It says, For of his fullness we have all received, listen to this, grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. You know what that means? That means when you get to the end of the first batch of grace, before it runs out, there's more. There's a whole new batch. And when you get to the end of that batch of grace, there's a whole new... You cannot exhaust the grace of God. From His fullness, grace upon grace upon grace. Lord, I sin today, grace. Lord, I messed up again, grace. Lord, I'm such a sinner, grace, grace, grace. And He's trying to help us get it. Yes, confess your sins, but stop wallowing in them. Stop beating yourself up and saying, I'm such a sinner. You are a sinner. Okay, I get it. But I also have grace for you. Come take it. Grace upon grace. And it has nothing to do with you and with me. I gave you a land on which you did not labor. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. We are covered with a blood that we did not shed. The sweat and the tears of another, Jesus Christ. And think about it this way. We did not receive the gifts of the Spirit because we earned them. The gifts of the Spirit, they're not the rewards of the Spirit. And that is so important to understand. I think right there there's a serious problem in Christianity. We get so excited about our spiritual gifts and our empowerment that we begin to think that somehow we had something to do with even receiving those. And we didn't. Because they're called gifts. This is important, gang. I want you to think about when you were a kid and you got a gift at Christmas time. Now, I don't know about you, but this is what I did. A little confession from Pastor Rick here. I would get a gift and I would go compare it to my friend's gifts. And if my gift was a little bit better, I was cooler than they were. I remember a friend got the Evil Knievel Sun Cycle. Well, I got the Evil Knievel Sun Cycle with the big rig that Evil Knievel could jump over. So, I was better than my friend was. Now, if he had gotten Evil Knievel Stunt Cycle with the big rig and the extra ramp, he would have been better. But he didn't. He just got Evil Knievel. What I'm saying here is it's absolutely ridiculous for you and I to be proud of our spiritual gifts as if they mean we are more righteous than someone else. They're gifts. They are not rewards. Well, the rewards of the Spirit are blah, 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 blah. No, the gifts of the Spirit, which He freely gives us. So we've got grace upon grace, and then we have gift upon gift, and it's all from the Lord, and none of it's from us. So that all we can really do is say, praise God, hallelujah, it's all from Him. Going on, verse 14. 
tells us, Now therefore, Joshua says, Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is number six. No, number five. Where is that six? That's number six. Joshua's exclamation. Now he's getting down to it. And by the way, it's not the exclamation point of Joshua's last sermon. This is the exclamation point of Joshua's life. This is what it all comes down to for Joshua. Hey, you serve whoever you want to, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That's my heart. That is my exclamation. That's the sum total of where Joshua has landed after 110 years. Now we're going to talk about this a little bit more on Sunday, just those couple of verses. So I'm going to move on tonight, but I just want to ask you this question. How about you? As for you and your house, who are you going to serve? Joshua would say, choose tonight. Make a decision. And stand on that decision. The Bible ends in Revelation chapter 22 with a very interesting statement. In fact, I want to read it to you. Revelation 22 Verse 11. Jesus says, Let the one who does wrong still be wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. What does that mean? It means choose. You make your decision. Who are you going to live for? Are you going to choose this day to serve the Lord? Or are you going to choose to serve someone else or to serve your own interests? Whatever you do, don't waffle. Make your decision and stand by it. The Lord says, if you're going to choose filthiness, stick with it. If you're going to choose to be filthy, then plan on stinking. That's where you need to be if that's your choice. But don't pretend like you can jump back and forth over the fence. Choose today whom you will serve and stick to it. Now, when people react, I mean, they are getting pumped up here because Joshua, man, he's gone off. (laughs) We've had prophecy from him. We've had challenge from him. We've had encouragement. And now we get this great exclamation, man, choose today. And you can just see the people whipped up. And they're just going, yes, yes. Number seven, I guess this will be in your notes, the people's excitement. They are excited. Verse 16, they say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is He who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through through whose midst we passed. Verse 18, they say, The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. Woohoo! They're cheering, they're shouting, Serve the Lord! And Joshua says, <laughs> you can't do it. Joshua, this is not the time to be negative. <laughs> you got him on a roll. Keep going. Push him. No. He says, you will not be able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions 
for your sins. Joshua, what are you doing here? He says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, He will turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done good to you. You can almost see the people now going, what? We said we'll serve Him. Joshua's saying, no, you won't. And he goes on. He says, he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. And the people said to Joshua, no, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. There's still some excitement. We're okay, all right. We're witnesses. We will serve Him. We choose Him. We want the Lord. Now, I said earlier, Joshua knew something. And this is it. When Joshua says, you will not be able to serve the Lord, it is not idle speculation. It's idle recognition. Look at verse 23. He says, now therefore, put away the foreign gods, look at this, which are in your midst. And incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God, and we will obey His voice. Joshua says, Put away the gods which are in your midst. They had been in the land 30 years. And in 30 short years, they already have houses and villages filled with idols. And Joshua knows this. Joshua hasn't even died yet. And as he's giving this great, this great farewell address, and he makes this statement, you will not be able to serve the Lord, he's not just being Mr. Negative. Not being a killjoy here. He's saying, you're, not, you're telling me you want to serve the Lord, and I know half of you are going to go home and look at your idols this afternoon. I know half of you are going to bow down to your idols that are sitting in your homes. Oh, we don't worship those, Joshua. They're just spoils from the battle against the ites as we fought our way through the land. Those gold and silver idols, they just look good on the mantle. They're just kind of nice on the desk. I love that big one in the corner, but I don't worship it. Joshua says, you will not be able to serve the Lord as long as one of those remain in your house. In fact, ultimately, it's idol worship that would bring Israel down. It's idol worship that will cause Israel to perish quickly off the land. They will be there a short four to five hundred years and they will lose everything that the Lord gave them because of idol worship. Keep your finger there and turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. Now I know when we talk about this issue of idol worship, we kind of think, well that's just that was then and this is now and, and we're not idolatrous. And I know that you probably have heard at some point in your life a sermon about all the idols that we do worship, like our television sets and our cars and our homes and all that, blah blah blah. The materialism, that's our idol. I want you to listen closely to this. Jeremiah chapter twenty three, verse twenty five. The Lord is speaking. And he's telling the people, he says I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets 
who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declare the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, the Lord declares. Now this ties in with another verse, and it's Ezekiel 14. I'm just going to read this to you, and you can jot it down and check this out. But there was something going on in Israel that was problematic. And it was the connection between false prophecy and idol worship. And this is the connection. Listen real closely to this. Ezekiel 14, verse 4. Thus says the Lord God, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his sin and then comes to the prophet... I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols. Huh? <laughs> this is one where you got to read it a few times and process it. I will come. If a guy has idols set up in his heart and he goes to the false prophet and says, I want to know something, guess what's going to happen? He's going to think he's listening to me, but he is truly going to be listening to his idols. If you have idols set up in your heart and you seek the Lord, you're going to listen to the idol and you're going to think it's the Lord. This should frighten. Someone says, I have a peace about my decision to leave my wife. Or someone says, you know what? I don't care what the Word says. I just feel right about this in my heart. Or someone says, look... Regardless of what you think, the Lord has approved of my lifestyle. And what it is, is people are, have idols set up in their minds, and they think when they go to the Lord that they're hearing from the Lord, and they're not. They're hearing from their idols. They're hearing from the deceitfulness of their own hearts. People who would stand up and say, regardless of whether or not the Bible agrees, you know, I'm listening to the Lord. Now, i got to tell you guys something. I get really nervous, and I know part of it is just my old conservatism. And I'm talking spiritually. But I get really nervous when we talk about it. And Larry, we've talked about this a little bit. Not calling you out, by the way. Larry's got this dialed down. This is good stuff. But I get nervous when I hear people talking about two versions of the word. There's the rima, the Greek word for the spoken word in the New Testament. And there's the logos, the Greek word for the written word in the New Testament. Here's where I get nervous. If the rima, the spoken word, God speaking to you, specifically and personally, if it isn't lining up 100% with the written word, it is not the word of God. If you can't open the Bible and compare what you are hearing from the Lord and know for certain that what's in here is what's coming from Him, it's not from the Lord. And yet in Christianity, there is a buzz about the Rima right now. 
Well, God told me. Well, the Lord said. Well, thus said the Lord. And, and gang, that's all well and good. But if it's not comparable to Scripture, it is not the word of the Lord. It is the work of the deceit of the heart. And it's probably the idols in a person's life. I want so badly for it to be this way. And so that's what I listen to instead of truly listening to the word, Rima and Logos together, the word of the Lord. That is absolutely clear. This is why we're teaching through the Bible at the bridge. This is why when you show up here on a Wednesday night, you can be guaranteed there's going to be a lot of verses up there and a lot of chapters down here. Because we want to know God's word as it's written and spoken. We've got to have something to compare. If we're just going off the spoken word, we're in deep trouble, gang. Now I say that because I support learning to listen to the spoken word of God. And I believe God by His Holy Spirit speaks to men and women today. I believe He gives us dreams and visions. Acts chapter 2 says He will. My young men, my old men, they're going to have dreams and visions. That's the way it's going to work in the latter days. I'm going to put my spirit on my sons and even my daughters. They're going to prophesy. These things, these active manifest gifts of the Spirit, they're real. They're tangible. God does speak to His people. But He will not violate His word. It's not the Rima against the Logos. It is the Rima compared to or, or balanced by or borne up by the Logos. I'm sorry to go off a little bit on that, but it, it concerns me. We've got to be careful as we seek to hear the spoken word of the Lord. Because if there's an idol in my heart and I inquire of the Lord, I might think I'm listening to the Lord when truly I'm not. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than everything else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I can't compare what's right and what's wrong based on how I feel in my heart because my heart is sick. But His word is perfect and endures forever, Psalm 19 tells us. And so I can run to His Word. And if it feels good in my heart, and I run to His Word, and His Word shores it up, His Word says, yes, that's right, then hallelujah, I was right, my heart got it. But if my heart is off from where the Word is, I'm wrong. And i got to readjust what's inside of me to what God is truly saying. Bottom line, I cannot hear the Lord when I'm listening to idols. It's not just about statues, gang. It's about compromise and passions and lust and desires and anything that is not of the Lord, which is why John, in the last of his little letters, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, he says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Guard against idols. It's easy to get whipped up into excitement like the people do, saying, yes, I'll do whatever the Lord asks me, but if my life is compromised by other voices, I'm going to have a hard time hearing from the Lord. One more thing here, and we'll get back to this and finish up. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. In verse 1, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, He who does not enter by the door in the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls out his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. The stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. I like that. To listen to the Lord so much that I don't even... A stranger starts to speak and I'm taken off because I don't understand. I don't relate to... I don't get the voice of the strangers. I only hear the voice of the Lord. And Jesus goes on to say, he says down in verse 16, 
He says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. He's speaking of Israel. This fold. I have other sheep that are not of the fold of Israel. I've got others. It's you and me. And he says, I must bring them also, for they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Last night at our elders meeting, this is just great, we were talking about shepherding and this whole idea of shepherding and being shepherds. And one of our elders, okay, it was Tom, said, <coughs> he said, you know, when I think about this, he said, we're, we're just praying about this. And he said, I, I get this picture. He said, I'm not, I don't know if I'm comfortable with the idea of me being a shepherd because Jesus is our shepherd. But I get this picture of us being among all the sheep and the only difference between me in, in, a, in a shepherding or a leadership or an elder position and the other sheep is i got a bell around my neck. And so I'm following the chief shepherd and as I follow that, that bell's ringing the other sheep go oh there's the bell you know and that's the only reason they're going the same direction I am because I happen to be going, going the direction of Jesus and that little bell's ringing and I thought that was the greatest picture of what truly a leader in a church should be someone's got a little bell around his neck and he's following Jesus and so you follow because you hear the bell ringing and you look up and you see Jesus is right there and I've shared with you before when it comes to leadership at the bridge if the shepherds, or better yet, the sheep with the little bells around their neck, if they're not following the shepherd, you don't follow the leaders. It's as simple as that. The number one responsibility of a shepherd at the Bridge Christian Fellowship is to keep their eyes on Jesus. It's like Paul said, you follow my example as I follow Christ. And that caveat there should never be left off and is unfortunately often left off in churches. Follow your leaders. Because they're your leaders. No. Follow your leaders if they're following Christ and you hear the little bell tinkling. Or ringing. Maybe it's a better word. <laughs> Let's finish this. Verse 25. Verse 25. We're almost done. <laughs> Notice, by the way, in verse 24, the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and we will obey His voice. The only way to obey His voice is to be listening to his voice. Verse 25, So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you so that you do not deny your God. And then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his inheritance. That's so interesting to me. Now, I could just be out on a limb a little bit here, but I caught something. I don't know if you caught it reading through that. He said, this stone, this stone's going to be a witness. What did, what did Jesus say about the stones? He said, I tell you, if these become silent, the people who are praising Him, the stones are going to cry out. If you try and shut up the people who are praising me and calling me Hosanna, the stones, they're going to cry out, Luke 19.40. And gang, one stone did cry out. There is one stone who remains, the ultimate stone of witness, the ultimate stone that testifies, and it's the one that was rolled away on Resurrection Day. Just like Joshua's stone of witness, the stone of the tomb was set up near a tree. Here, here in the passage we see this large stone set up under the oak. This stone w- was set up at the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, very near a tree. 
the tree of Calvary, the cross, where Jesus was crucified. In fact, Golgotha, Skull Hill, was located outside the Damascus Gate. You can see it today, Golgotha, and it is on a hillside that houses a garden. And it did back in that day, John 19.41. In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And this verse, this John 19.41, that there was a garden by the place where he was crucified, where the tomb was, first started some people in the mid-1800s to thinking. The, um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, number one, is inside the city. And the Bible says he was crucified outside the city. And, and, and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is not near Skull Hill. Skull Hill was over there. And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, is not in a garden. But, but there's a garden over here. And in 1850, there were some men, General Charles Gordon was one of the famous ones, a contemporary of his, a man named Conrad Schick. They began to really look at Jerusalem and figured out that there is a place there on Skull Hill there was a garden area and they began to dig and to look and discovered a tomb it's called the garden tomb today it's the one that I visit when we go to Jerusalem because the church of the holy sepulcher I like to visit the garden tomb <laughs> I'm not going to say anything else about it but that tomb there it's an interesting spot because it's right there at the bottom of the hill and John says that's where Jesus was buried. They took him down off the cross. They went right down the hill to the garden and there was the tomb. And they put him in the tomb. This stone, this large witness stone set up near the tree. Is it a picture? I don't know, but it sure does remind me of the stone that is the true witness. And here's the great thing about this witness. You can't find him anywhere. The witness stone that was rolled away from the tomb is gone. We have no idea where it is. In fact, if you visit the garden tomb, they have a little round stone over on the side so you can get an idea what it might have looked like, but that's not it. When they discovered it, when they unearthed it, there was no stone there. It was gone. Well, that's because it was rolled away. That's because it was no longer of use after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a wonderful witness. Our stone of witness, absent from the tomb. And that's our witness the resurrection of Jesus. The stone is not there. And so Jesus said in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who, believes, who lives and believes in me will never die. And Jesus says, do you believe this? Now listen. We're right up at the end. But i got a couple more things to tell you as we close this out. You come down to the last few verses here. And there are three entombments. So I guess there were eight vistas for you to look at, as opposed to seven. Three entombments. In other words, three graves. Three entombments. Entombment number one is Joshua's. Verse 29 says, It came about after these things, that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, and being 110 years old, they buried him, verse 30, in the territory of his inheritance, in Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, on the north of Mount Gaash. Timnath-Serah, you may recall, means abundant portion. Joshua's residence there at the end of all this was the abundant portion. I like that. Verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua 
and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Joshua is buried there in Nazareth, truly having lived an abundant life, a full life, because he lived a life that was engaged. He lived a life where he exalted the Lord, encouraging and entreating the people of God to follow the Lord. And he dies with what I believe is the greatest epitaph someone can die with. Verse 29, it says, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord. I like that. Not the commander, not the military genius, not the, the follower after Moses, not the great leader of the people into the Can- into Canaan's land. No, Joshua, servant of the Lord. And even in Joshua the man's death, we are given a reminder of Joshua HaMashiach, our Lord. For even the Son of Man, Mark 10.45, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the first tomb, Joshua's. In tomb at number two, Joseph's. Joseph, Joseph, wait, didn't we finish with him back in Genesis? Yeah, check this out. Verse 32, now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money, and they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. Joseph's dying request here is now finally fulfilled. Go back to Genesis chapter 50 verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. And so a 400 year old promise is fulfilled in this verse. Which is pretty cool. But why did Joseph want to have his bones carried back to Israel? I mean, who cares? They're just bones. Put them in a box. Why? The Bible tells us, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. So this is an act of faith. He's on his deathbed and he says, carry my bones back up to the land of Canaan. Huh? It's a faith act. It is a faithful request on the part of Joseph. How is it an act of faith? Because Joseph died looking forward. He died with an expectation. Joseph had a home in Egypt, but Egypt was not his home. Egypt is not where his heart was. Though Joseph spent the vast majority of his life, from a teenager all the way to his death, he spent in Egypt. Egypt was never home to Joseph. The promised land was home. The land of his fathers was home. And he died looking forward. In fact, I I believe beyond that gang, Joseph's bones were a prophetic proclamation of Israel's homecoming and a hopefulness on Joseph's part that when he's resurrected, it will be right there in the land. Faith. Joseph believed that there was more to his life than bones in a box. That there would be a resurrection that's coming. Now I'm going to give you an opinion here, and I want to capitalize this. Opinion. Do you see it flashing? This is Rick's opinion. I've been asked about burial versus cremation several times. Which is appropriate? Which is right? Which is okay? Is it all right to cremate? I'm giving you an opinion. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
Okay? So that's the bottom line. Dead in Christ will rise. If you die in Christ, whether you're buried or cremated, it's a non-issue. You will rise. The dead in Christ will rise first. And the Lord Jesus, when He calls us home, can, and I believe will, revive and reorganize molecules and cells and structure and that day that our bodies are glorified and our spirits are all put back together and we go to live eternally it's going to happen he has the power to do that and it's not going to matter if you're buried in a box or if your ashes are sprinkled over the sea or snorted by Keith Richards it's not going to make a difference okay <laughs> in October of 2000 by the way Joseph's tomb was overrun and destroyed by Palestinian terrorists do you remember that? this tomb that we just read about there was a, a, a little dome over it and a room built around and above it. And historically, they know that to be the place of the burial of the bones of Joseph. And there were skirmishes going on and the Israelite army pulled out and the Palestinian police said, oh yeah, we'll protect the tomb. And they stood back while the terrorists burned it to the ground. And then they said, well, we're gonna, we'll, we'll fix it. We'll replace it. We'll, we'll build it back up. And, and so as they kind of, the, the dome was still in place. So they went and what they did is they began to rebuild it as they painted the top of the dome green. Why would they do that? Because green is the color of Islam. And their intention is to build a mosque over the bones of Joseph. Let me tell you something. Not even a mosque built over the bones of Joseph will stop the resurrection of Joseph when Jesus comes again. He is going to rise because the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we're going to join them. But as far as it depends on me, personally, personally, I believe burial is more expectant than cremation. Is cremation wrong? No, I'm not saying it is. But I'm saying burial for Joseph was an act of faith. Now why would you say this, Rick? Consider this with me just for a moment. Our bodies are a temple. Bodies are a temple of the Lord. That's what the Bible tells us, right? What is it that the enemies of God always did to the temple? They burned it down. They burned it to the ground. And in my opinion, if the choice is burial versus cremation, I think burial is a greater choice of faith. Because it is being laid down with expectation. Call me an old traditionalist again, but if I die before he calls, bury my body out by the old oak tree because I want to lie there in expectancy. I want to lie there ready to go. And again, if you have a loved one, friend, a family member who has died and has been cremated, I am not in any way, shape, or form saying that that's wrong because the Bible doesn't address it that way. And we see many cultures over the years where that is exactly how death is, is dealt with. And the power of God is certainly able to reorganize molecules and bring a body back together wherever it happens to be. Okay? So that's my opinion. And feel free to disagree. That's okay with me. Last tomb. Verse 33. The final tomb as we close out the book. Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him at Gibeah of Phinehas, his son, which was given him in the hill country of Ephraim. The book does not end with the death of Joshua. The book of Joshua, the book where we see Joshua throughout, the book where Joshua is a picture of Yeshua, doesn't end with the death and burial of Joshua. It ends with the burial of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, buried at Gibeah in the hill country of Ephraim. And this is this is wonderful. Gibeah literally means on the hill. So what we're reading here is Eliezer, whose name means God has helped. 
God has helped. The high priest, whose name is God has helped, is buried on the hill. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus who paid for the atonement of our sins, himself with his own blood, the ultimate, the perfect high priest, was buried on that hill of Calvary. And what was the high priest most responsible for? What was the most important day on the Jewish calendar that had to do with that high priest? Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. That's what the high priest was connected with more than anything else. Atonement. And that's what our high priest did for us. I'll read this to you and we're done. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. A mere copy of the true one. But into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood that was not even his own. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of all the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who listen, to those who eagerly await Him. Are you eager? Are you eagerly awaiting the return of this great high priest who paid for our atonement with his own blood? What's awesome about the close of the book of Joshua is it is still about Joshua, but it's about the right Joshua. The one that we have been seeing throughout this entire book, Jesus Christ. Praise Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for sharing this this book, this history, this prophetic wonder, this truth with us. We thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all of the the archetypes and the models and the pictures and the portraits that we've seen of him. But Lord, though we see and understand all that and we are moved by it, we don't want to constantly look back to the old pictures. We want to join with the biblical writers. We want to join with men like Joseph and Joshua who have an expectancy who are eagerly waiting for the day when we will see with our own eyes Jesus, our Lord and Savior. I pray tonight, Father, you will send us out of here. And I pray, Lord, that though we've covered a lot of ground tonight, that there will be life-learning principles, that there will be things that have been worked out, things that we can understand better now for having done this study. But more than that, I pray that our heart and our passion and our desire to follow Jesus will have intensified tonight. Carry that with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.